This podcast is brought to you by Lerex. Lerex is a payment solutions provider that brings prepaid debit cards to market for your business. Setting up prepaid cards can be complex. Lerex combines their experience with a cutting-edge platform to set up and manage this on your behalf. Whether it's a card to help your clients settle claims more easily or to improve your business's digital payment capabilities, visit www.larextech.com to learn more. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 77 of InsureTech Insider. We are still recording remotely and we'd love to know what guests you think we should get on the show. Do get in contact by emailing us at podcasts at 11fs.com if you know someone we should have along. So in today's show, we're going to be discussing the most interesting news across InsureTech and insurance from across the globe. I'm joined today by my co-host Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel? Waving furiously to everyone. I'm really well, actually. I'm I'm good. It's wet outside. I'm nice and cosy and dry inside. Uh, for our guest benefit, we have to start every episode by talking about the weather because we are British. It is the law. Um, do not feel you have to comment on the weather wherever you are. Um, speaking of our guests, we are joined by uh, two people making their InsureTech Insider debut. Uh, first up, we have Pran Arya, Commercial Direct at HomeTree. How are you doing today, Pran? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm really excited to be on. I've, I've been a bit of an avid listener, so definitely excited to actually have my debut. Well, thank you so much for coming along. Um, can you start by giving us a quick overview of what Home Tree is? Yeah, sure. So Home Tree is a slightly different type of home insurance. So we are the leading challenger brand in what's called kind of home breakdown cover or home emergency response insurance. So what that means is we provide homeowners and landlords with the peace of mind that their home will continue to be working smoothly, but that if any of the core infrastructure of their home fails, so their heating, the water, um, the electrics, we'll send an engineer to fix it, usually within 24 hours. So we're quite different to your kind of typical indemnity insurance because we send a fully vetted home tree engineer to your home to fix as well as pay for the um, problem as well. So actually some customers don't even regard this as insurance so and and obviously as we're spending more and more time at home this winter we think it's a super important thing that um not every not everyone knows about brilliant well thank you for joining us um next up we have raj varia head of insurance product new products at simply business how are you today raj i'm doing really well um and i won't comment on the weather here but back home in australia my family are enjoying lovely 25 degree spring sunshine that's it hang on 25 degrees you've commented on the weather it's raining here (laughs) sorry guys i mean i'm stuck in it as well Well, all right well let's move away from that um and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about simply business and what it does Sure. Uh, So Simply Business is an online commercial and landlord insurance broker. Um, We service micro SMEs in particular on the commercial side um, and obviously landlord as well. And I actually uh, head up the new insurance product development area at Simply Business. So we are moving into different areas, including micro not-for-profit insurance, health insurance, life insurance, that sort of thing. So that's sort of my uh, what I do there. Brilliant. Bit of a bit of a tease there. I'm sure we'll have to get you back on when, when some of those things go live. <laughs> um, I also understand that you, while this may be your debut, you are quite practised at the old podcast game. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Risky Mix. 
Sure. Uh, so the Risky Mix is something that um, I'm very passionate about. I, it's a, a podcast that really focuses on diversity and inclusion in the insurance industry in particular, which I co-host with um, my friend and uh, ex-colleague, uh, Katie Crook-Davies. So yeah, we have amazing guests who come on and talk about their personal experiences, particularly centered around diversity and inclusion. Brilliant. That, that sounds fantastic. And we actually had Katie on the show quite recently as well. So we've managed to to get you both along. Um, but no, I think that's a fantastic subject and one we've we've tackled a few times, but perhaps um, nowhere near as expertly as, as you would. So uh, I think our listeners should could go and have a look for that wherever they get their podcast. Um, thank you both so much for joining us. Let's get on with today's show. So the first story is that Lloyds of London is looking to abandon traditional office working post-pandemic. I say post-pandemic with a sigh. I see no sign of there ever being a post-pandemic. Um, but let's go with Lloyds of London is looking at changing up the ways of working. So this one uh, we got from The Telegraph. So uh, Chairman Bruce Carnegie-Brown said that in the longer term, Lloyds is likely to see a more blended approach that enables the best of remote working with the benefits of a flexible working space. He also mentioned that COVID-19 has accelerated Lloyd's progress towards becoming a truly flexible workspace. Um, If you want more uh, insight into that, um, we actually had a fantastic guest uh, do. We had a special episode on that with um, Lou from Lloyd's of London a few weeks ago. So please do go and look that up because you can get a lot more insight into what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, And it's obviously worth noting that Lloyd's is definitely not the only one (laughs) looking at flexible ways of working as uh, the current crisis continues. Um, So, I think perhaps the difference between this and every other story we hear about, you know, offices going remote and JP Morgan Chase going remote is that uh, Lloyds of London's trading rooms, which are um, historically in-person trading rooms, are such a huge part of Lloyds of London's, I suppose, culture, but also identity. So, I, you know, I think we could start off by saying, you know, what do you think this will mean for Lloyds of London as an institution? And it is an institution. It's been around a lot longer than almost anything else I can think of when we look at uh, the City of London and, and businesses. Um, so who wants to go first on that one? Please, Raj, jump in. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, actually, because I think even those of us who haven't worked at Lloyds of London, um, think sort of it's sort of a almost a shrine to sort of go there and see what happens there it's like you said it's historical it's so there's so much tradition in the um in that activity I think that it's going to have to change and I think that there are ways that we are able to sort of use this digital forum to replicate some of at least at the core of what um happens in the Lloyd's marketplace but I have full faith that we will that the new normal is going to, when we finally do get past this pandemic, will see us in a place where we're being able to go back to some of those activities. So it may not be that, you know, we're crammed in together in July next year, but maybe in two years down the line, we will be able to have at least socially distanced traders back in, in, in the Lloyd's building. And hopefully what this does do is gives us all a chance to think about what does work about our working practices um, and what actually is more efficiently done um, in a digital way. My, my heart just dropped, Raj. You just said two years, and I've just gone sigh. And before oh, the show, Sarah said else about sigh. Oh my God, I was I was actually in London yesterday, and I didn't grow up in the UK. I'm born in Ireland and did school and everything else over there. So I almost think I'm a tourist still in London, and I love all the sights. You'll see me on Twitter posting pictures of, of uh, St. Paul's and whatever else. But one of those things I love 
is, is as you say, is a beacon, is the Richard Rogers building of um, Lloyds of London. And it, for me, is almost the, the global home of insurance, no matter what you do. It's iconic in nature, the lifts outside. And as you go from modern on the outside to some of the very original things, the bell and everything else, I just can't imagine our industry, I rephrase that, I don't want to imagine our industry without it. And I think as it plays such a pinnacle role, I think, uh, you know, I think we mentioned it's what's happening right now is, is an accelerant for many industries, but it's not necessarily a change agent. So it's, the work is still going on. It's just going on in different places. I still think the expertise that sits here in London, whether it's aviation or whatever it may be, is often best delivered face to face with those relationships that you've got. So I, I'm all for the how do we get people back into that space to do the interaction negotiation, the um, engagement that we had, whilst you could do some of the tasks that we do, the admin and whatever else, back at back at a different location, I guess. But Pran, did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I've actually never been to Lloyd's of London, but I can understand. I, I, you Googled it yesterday and had a look at, um, you know, the trading floor. I think the similarity that I can, um, you know, relate to, to kind of home tree is our kind of big customer service or customer success kind of department where you mentioned how that kind of the culture and the camaraderie of being on this, being face to face just gets completely lost. And I think um, I, as a, as a startup, we are all for change in, in the insurance industry. That, that's kind of what we're all about. But you're absolutely right. I think losing some of the history and heritage that um, Lloyd's obviously has um, and those, those that culture and the, the, the history, I think, is a sad thing. But ultimately, we are going to have to change the way we work going forward. And hopefully it'll be interesting to see how they um, adapt to that. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never been to Lloyd's either, and and Lou promised me as soon as it was safe, she was going to take me on a tour, like a personal tour, and show me. They apparently have the most fantastic artifacts there. It's a bit like a museum, and I it's I did amazing. a history degree. Yeah, so I I, I want to go and see it, but to sort of have a slightly different spin on this, I would like to focus. I've mentioned this before, but I'd like to focus on perhaps this speaks well to what what you've looked at, Raj, that um some of the problems with having insurance centered on that building and the culture that it um, has created and invoked. And I think going to remote working gives us an opportunity to make our workplaces uh, more diverse and more inclusive. Um, The example I always give, because it's the one I know a lot about, because my mum was one, is a working single mum trying to juggle the school run and be in meetings and and she has to leave early. So she misses all the the, the social aspect, which means she misses out on promotions, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I just wondered, we'll have to move on shortly, but if you had any thoughts about what you've seen, perhaps, you know, uh, businesses taking the opportunity to look at this and think, right this is a way we can improve all over the board including by bringing some of those people in and championing some of those people who perhaps might have been left by the sidelines a little bit for whatever reason they weren't able to get to these big centers absolutely i mean we're seeing it at simply business where we're recruiting in our um customer uh, consultant call center where we are now able to recruit across the uk um we don't need to be focusing on the region of Northampton, which is where physically the consultant centre is, is located. We're able to look for talent everywhere, which I think is just so important where, you know, it just doesn't make sense to focus your search for talent on this narrow pool of can you make it into um the metropolis of London, when you're able to source talent from India, from Africa, from China, from from you know Cornwall, from Manchester, like it's a, it totally expands the scope of diversity within your organisation, which I think time and again we've seen 
improving diversity improves overall performance of companies and improves the culture um, throughout. So it makes everybody feel more more inclusive and will it therefore improve the products and services that we produce as well and our ability to talk to our customers. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree. And I just want to keep mentioning is it's something that we need to keep bringing back. But I'm going to move us on to another story, which is still Lloyd's related, because why not? Um, and it's kind of linked to the first one. It's that Lloyd's of London um, is conducting an insurance product review. Um, so this one came from Insurance Business Mag, um, one of the snappier titles, I find. Uh, Lloyd's of London um, has also revealed that it will be conducting a review into the way that insurance products are designed and sold. It includes a call for simpler products in response to the pandemic, uh, which I think is a call that's, that the whole industry has joined in with. Well, at least at least the section of the industry that cares about the customers. Lloyd said in a press release that the pandemic has set irreversible societal change in motion around the world. And as a result of that, new insurance solutions are required to provide greater protection for customers' needs. A report called uh, Building Simpler Insurance Products to Better Protect Customers has been developed in collaboration with Lloyd's Global and UK Advisory Committees and has set out a number of ways in which the global insurance industry could remove complexity and enable coverage clarity for customers. Um, The three key recommendations from that report are leveraging and building on the application of existing leading practice, which includes a linguistics review of policies, presumably write them in English or whichever language the person who is is taking out the policy actually speaks, Um, investing in continuous product design and delivery innovations, including options such as parametric insurance, really interesting to see a a call out for parametric insurance there, Um, and involving customers directly directly in product design in a bid to build products which are simpler and more relevant. Um, Lloyd is also uh, committed to taking affirmative action itself, including reviewing how products are developed, designed and distributed. Um, Who wants to go first on this one? Has anybody read it? Nigel, have you read the report? I I can't say I have read it, but A, I want to thank you for the reference to Have I Got News For You with the Insurance Business Mag report. That's very good. Thank you for that. Um, But but you have to look at this and go, the one word that stands out for me here massively is the word remove. And I say that because we look at all the things that get piled into policies year after year after year, that some things are covered, some things aren't covered. Uh, And even my £65 or whatever it was, travel policy, when my claim got denied, I was referred to page 103. Now, for £65, I can promise you and assure you all that I did not read to page 103. I read the first key facts and asked some quick questions about whether we're covered because of our asthma or whatever else. But outside that, we weren't, we weren't uh, too interested in all the exclusions. And I think given the case that's still ongoing because some of people have appealed, this is the right time to work out if people are clear on what they're buying, if they understand what they're buying, and it's written in such a way that there is no ambiguity. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I haven't read the report, but it's, it's, it's amazing because this is exactly how we um, designed our product. So we see our terms and conditions as a UX problem in the same way that our website is. So we made sure that as we wrote them, we tested them with customers, made sure they understood what the ambiguity was. You know, when you work in insurance, there's so much jargon that you use on an everyday level that the average person just won't know. And we made sure that there's not a, you know, pages and pages of definitions that can get lost. Um, so, yeah, I think it's super important to remember that the terms and conditions are there as a guideline for your business, not as a way to push back claims. Um, like you said, uh, Nigel, referring to page 110, 120 on a, in a big document, which no one's ever going to read. And um, 
you know, most customers might not read the terms and conditions when they sign up. I mean, I, I never have. Um, like you said, you read the key facts. But from our experience, we know that when customers have been burnt in the past, they will go and look in that section. And if you can make that easy for them to understand, I think that's super important. So, you know, we spend a lot of time doing that and, and hopefully others will follow. Raj, did you want to, did you have anything to add on that? Yeah, no, absolutely agree. I think it's particularly when you enter the industry for the first time or you're coming from outside of insurance into into the insurance industry, it's quite baffling in terms of how complex it can be. For those who have been in the industry for a long time, who have um, particularly have worked in claims and operations, they understand the complexity of, you know, what, what they see as the policy terms and the implications of, of not making them tight, tight enough. It's almost like this, this assumption that your customer is going to be trying to defraud you and so you need to make the policy wording as extensive as possible I think we really need to shift it more than we have done to focus on the customer and the customer's ability to understand the product uh, in many cases we're still not there so I was just going to say and I think it's important what we spend a lot of time doing in our terms and conditions is, is explaining to the customer why certain things aren't included and going to going to length to make sure that they even understand so actually when we do have to say, you know, unfortunately, we can't do this, we, we, we put the effort in to explain why. And often customers get it. So yeah, I think that's a super important part of it as well, to work with the customer to explain why things are the way they are. Nigel, did you want to? Yeah, I think the key thing here, and, and we've all talked about retail environments, the key thing here, of course, is we're not talking about uh, a boiler cover or, or SME cover for my business. What we're talking about here, but I think there are lessons to be learned from the retail space, is a broker, an educated buyer of risk services or or of um, risk insurance to say, I'd like to insure my fleet of 737. So I want to insure this section of town in a major city or this commercial property. So there are, we're talking about a very different type of risk, but I think the same principles need to be applied in the same way that we talk about, I hate the phrases, but the Uber of or the Amazon of or whatever else it is, but we've got to make it simple, clear and unambiguous to avoid any issues around risk as a start of attempt, but trust of the industry. Mm. Pran, did you have a final a final point on that one? Yeah, just really quickly, I was going to say it links back to that diversity point, though, as well. If we want to encourage younger and more diverse group of people to join the insurance space, then, you know, you limit the amount of complexity that is required to, you know, to learn, which you build up over many years. And even in this type of insurance, I think that's a good thing. Nigel, over to you. So next story, with a link back to the previous story, uh, the next one is Cover Genius raises 10 million US dollars. Uh, so the global insurtech leader, leading provider of protection for the customers of some of the world's largest online companies has raised 10 million in Series B. Quite an interesting piece right now, if you think of uh, the amount of fundraising that's going on and the amount of insurtechs that are actually emerging at the moment from a a report we did recently, uh, funds for these guys will support the company's investments in talent and its continued global growth across the UK, US and into Asia. Uh, I think, again, a really, really good sign. Um, distribution technology provides regulated insurance policies that integrate into online point of sale and sign up parts in more than 60 countries and 50 US states. Now, the thing and actually why I got confused on this with regards to Australia earlier, is these are the guys that embed InsurTech into point of sale. So for example, you can hire a, a car and by default, it's all embedded into the user journey at the outset. So um, they do that with jewelry, flight tickets, cars, and a whole host of things. Um, to find out more, we spoke to Cover Genius co-founder and chief innovation officer, 
Chris Bailey. Let's hear more from him now. Hi, it's Chris Bailey, co-founder of Cover Genius. I'm really pleased to make today's announcement regarding our £10 million capital raise, which was a follow-on from our Series C at the end of last year. The raise confirms that InsurTechs are bringing innovation to the insurance industry and turning traditional insurance programs on their head. The raise allows uh, Cover Genius to expand our Neo carrier capability. We've got captives up and running in Europe and for US surplus lines and to continue to expand our insurance licensing, which extends to over 60 countries and 50 US states, um, and to continue our mission to protect all the customers of the world's largest online companies. On CoverGenius.com, we recently published case studies from AXS UK, who grew their ticket insurance GWP nearly 3x um, by replacing a traditional insurer, while another global retailer grew theirs 513% within a few weeks of switching out another well-known traditional warranty provider. We've also provided a playbook on the site for how we got our NPS to positive 65, which is on our tallying about 50 to 70 points higher than the top insurers in any other market. And as far as we know, it's also higher than every other B2C InsurTech releases their NPS data. My final point is that this is really encouraging for all your InsurTech listeners. We're seeing amazing innovation within the industry from InsurTechs who are disrupting archaic and expensive risk-focused traditional structures and instead bringing customers and convenience to the value chain. In every industry, those who are able to do that are unlocking all the value and the, and the end result is millions of happier customers. I love it. And I've talked about um, embedded invisible insurance. And I think these guys have got a really, really strong play about how you embed it into the things that you love, whether it's retail or driving a car. What do we think, folks? I mean, I was just going to say embedded is the latest word, isn't it? It's taken over from platformified, um, embedded finance. In fact, I was reading about an embedded finance conference this morning. Um, embedded is the thing. It's arguably embedded insurance isn't that new. You've been able to buy insurance with your new car for quite a long time. I'm just quite excited about the fact that anything can now come with insurance to make my life easier. You know, you can now buy a cat that comes with insurance. I mean, I'm not a cat really? person, but there is. Yeah. Yeah, when you go and buy your, your, your pet, you now say, do you want insurance with it? Um, not that you should ever buy an animal online. You should never buy an animal online. But the theory is the same. Um, the only thing I hope is that the policies are matched accurately with the products so we don't have the problem we referred to in the previous story that you think, oh, this is easy, this is great, it's so much easier, it's a little bit more expensive, but I don't have to go and look for a policy, so I'll just go with it. And then you find out that the policy that you've been sold along with your new car, TV, or cat, um, you know, isn't actually fit for purpose. So that's, I love the idea of embedded, I love the idea of making things easier, even I don't mind paying a little bit more for now whilst they work out the details, although I'd hope that price would drop eventually. Um, but I just hope it does the right thing. Um, Raj, I know I interrupted you, so please, back to you. <laughs> no, I mean, I was just going to say, great accent. Um, love it. <laughs> Are you uh, biased? Not at all. <laughs> There's no Aussie bias on this show, Nigel. I don't know what you mean. It's not as if you've got, you know, one one person who comes from there and one person who has lived there for a very long time. So, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, likewise, I think it's it's so fantastic. I think it's... InsurTech really working at its best here, taking customer centricity and really solving customer pain points here. I think um, it's something that the industry has been trying to do for ages is 
become invisible because insurance is, is such a you know such a push purchase uh, really it's something that you need to do in so many ways and you don't really want to go out of your way to have to go go and get this product but at the same time it has such value so if it comes alongside things that you're already doing in the first place when you're taking out your mortgage when you're having your child when you're buying your cattle mine whatever it is um, it just you're protected and you've got that peace of mind without actually having to put in that additional effort. Um, and, you know, to, to Chris's point around, you know, the, the importance of insure tax in the industry at the moment, I think it really does show how um, the industry is, is ripe for disruption and it, it's a really good thing. I and mean, I think it's it, incumbents now are getting that sense of how they can potentially change the way that they work, both in terms of um, themselves in, in silo, but also pairing with insure techs. And I think it's it's really great to see this this level of innovation. Yeah. Um, no, I completely agree. I think seeing that innovation is, is super important, but I really liked the point around tying it back to what we just talked about. I think sometimes we can make things too easy and if a product is complicated, like insurance often is, sometimes it is better to have the customer spend the time understanding exactly what is included or not. And I think an important word is trust. So if you trust the company that you're buying your cat from, um, and if, if, you, if you believe in them choosing the right insurer for you, I think that works well and if you can trust them. But I think there's many examples where, you know, you talk about Ryanair or, or other companies where your sign out journey is just plagued with upsells constantly and I think that's where it can get a bit dangerous I mean I personally had a skiing holiday cancelled I bought the insurance with the holiday and obviously it didn't I didn't read any of the documents and it didn't um, include uh, any pandemic any pandemic release so lost that money so I think um, when it works it works well but there's a lot of trust needed in the in the person in the company that you're buying it from and this is where the regulator steps in. So, and, and, I, and I always get knocked in it for any of the debates I get engaged on. So we'd love your perspective. Maybe it's a claim story that we go into, but the regulator jumps in with something called IDD, the Insurance Distribution Directive, which basically says we are not allowed to bundle things in a way that we haven't addressed the needs and wants of the clients going forward, especially where there's multiple financial products involved. So to your point, Pran, we can... We can upsell things that aren't necessarily financial related, but as soon as we start putting more financial things in the pot, we've got to make sure that you're not double covered or whatever else is out there. And actually they are fit for purpose for what you're buying. So I do think there's a level of protection there from things like IDD, but it's then how do we still make it convenient for the customer? Because I hate the word again, but it's a grudge to so many, but we almost need it there in the first place, right? Yeah, and I think... You're right. There's a lot, there is a lot of protection regulation, but it's definitely not to the level of knowing exactly what you're buying for. Buying, it's you know, I, you tick a box to say you read your terms and conditions, but not many people do. So there is a balance there because obviously everyone is incentivized to make that sign up journey as quick as quick as possible. And we find we struggle with that balance as well between making it easy for the customer to check out, making sure that we have all the regulation in place. But um, it's a tough one. You almost need levels, I suppose. So, you know, the the we we know that you know the more you pay for insurance, the the more you're covered for. So, I don't know. This is just an idea that might appeal to me. Although I would never buy. I'm never flying Ryanair again, let alone buying insurance from them, and that's a whole other story. But like, when you go to buy something, you know, do you want the basic? You know, when you you buy car insurance, you know, it's third party fire and theft. You know, it's you know com- fully comprehensive, whatever. To give you those three layers and set out exactly what you're covered for under each and give you that option. And I don't know if maybe that's a midway 
between making sure you understand it without adding too much complexity back in? There's levels of cover, which I get, you know, the gold, silver, bronze, or whatever the new words of saying those things are. But actually, isn't the thing that's slightly different here, I just mentioned those three lovely words or letters, P-P-I. So everyone might have read their T's and C's and ticked a box, but by making it too easy, we end up in a, in a crisis that costs the industry 40 billion plus and is still costing the industry a whole host of money. So I think we just need to be careful about how we avoid a repeat of that going forward. I think customer centricity is the key. Uh, and I think the entire industry needs to be centered around that. Uh, everything from the way that we design our products, the way that we um, write our terms and conditions, our policy documents, all the way through to the way that we remunerate um, our sales agents and and the way that we make money because you know where that falls down people are naturally go it's going to incentivize people's behaviors um, and so you know when your your metrics are based around customer satisfaction and doing what's right for the customer you know hopefully we can avoid you know PP, PPI type situations yeah no absolutely and, and I think it ties into a, a, a better uh, not better a broader concept that companies need to start giving back and not just taking, whether that's from their customers, whether that's from the environment, whether that's from their employees, you know, uh, it's, it's a whole movement towards you can't just be take, take, take all the time. Um, on that note, we're just going to go for a quick break. We'll be back very soon. A friendly reminder, we have a brilliant newsletter at 11FS called Fintech in 5. It's a snack-sized selection of the biggest stories of the week and is delivered straight to your inbox every Friday. You can find out more and sign up at 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. We've just launched two brand new shows on our LinkedIn page. And if you love the podcasts, then you should go and check them out. Every Tuesday, we deep dive into the biggest banking and fintech news stories with our show Newsroom. Um, We've already had some great episodes, uh, the latest on the Crowdcube and Cedars merger that you can watch back on our LinkedIn or YouTube now. And every Thursday, we speak to uh, experts in the technology and financial services world about the work that they do and their careers to date. You'll have the chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show by some of the best minds in the industry. So what are you waiting for? Search for 11FS on LinkedIn and follow us to start catching those streams. Thanks and on with the show. So our next story uh, is about Roots IPO. So Personal Lines InsureTech Root has filed its IPO proposal with the SEC. It hired Goldman Sachs to lead uh, the IPO for it. Um, So the uh, registration statement was filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission for proposed initial public offering of its common stock. Uh, The number of shares to be offered and the price range of the proposed offering have not yet been announced. Um, The rumoured valuation is around $6 billion. Root was founded in 2015 um, and offered uh, car insurance. It now uses a smartphone-administered driving test and an algorithm to offer a quote on car insurance, which, uh, according to Root, is fairer than the data used by traditional insurers. Um, The company also expanded into renter's insurance in 2019. Um, much to Raj's point earlier, you know, expanding into different products and services is something we're seeing more and more uh, insure techs doing. Um, Root says its particular advantage is derived from its ability to segment individual risk based on complex behavioral data, um, a customer experience built with ease of use, and a product offering made possible with a full stack insurance structure. 
Uh, in April of this year, Root agreed to purchase a Shell insurance company. Um, Root expects to close the acquisition later this year. Uh, but the point of that is to expand its ability to sell personal auto insurance um, into 48 states across the US and the District of Columbia. It's currently only available in 29 states. Um, so the first most obvious question is, uh, how does this compare to Lemonade? Uh, if we're going to talk InsureTech IPOs, surely those are the Sorry, that, that's the biggie that we've got to look at. Um, for context, Lemonade's valuation was around $3 billion the morning after it floated, um, but the shares have largely held their value since. They're around $85 the day after flotation, and when I last looked, they were at $67. It's not, you know, considering what's happened in the world, <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, but, but what do people, people think? Either, you know, in a comparison or if it's not a fair comparison, what does this mean for kind of the insure tech world? Is it the start of more and more of these or is it um is it just these two behemoths uh you know leading the charge and and, and probably up there on their own for a while well if i look at if i look at a cycle race you've always got the folks that lead oh, out God. the pack it's gonna be it's <laughs> gonna be fitness it was gonna be cycling i'm at the top of the peloton and we're running like mad um but you've always got people that will break away and i think these are the two breakaways that people would have expected at the outset you're absolutely spot on to compare it to lemonade um we've seen I think Lemonade was a story last week that said it dropped 25% of its value. And then, it's, uh, like you have just checked the stock price, it seems to have reclaimed it broadly. Uh, current valuation of about $4 billion. I, I think this is a good sign for the industry. It's a real threat to your traditional motor players in, in North America that have scale and volume. And it says there's a new way to do stuff. So I'm super excited for what the team at Root have done. And if this comes to market as a uh, will post their filings. I mean, the, the filings themselves are a, a goldmine of insights and in how people are driving and what they're doing. So it's been really, really interesting to see some of the commentary online about what they're doing and, and where they go next. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, we're definitely rooting for them and part of the fun. But um, def- <laughs> um, no, so I think, as a, again, as a um, post-Series A startup, we get um, compared to, you know, other insure techs. And if... If Lemonade and Root turn out to be successful over the next couple of years, that can only be good for for what we're trying to do. Um, I think they're interesting. I think both of them, I know Lemonade a bit more, but you know, both of them with their marketing hat on are incredible in terms of how they've created a brand, they give back, and the way they're growing, both of them growing incredibly quickly. They're kind of unit economics you know, aren't great yet. They're making large losses. I think I read somewhere that Lemonade is just over one. And over time, I think it'll be very interesting to know how private investors regard that. I think right now is a really, really good time to go public. We've seen, you know, loads and loads of companies go public and, you know, with Robin Hood investors and all that, good brands are doing really well out of it. Um, But I think we're watching it very closely over the next year or so to see how um, the unit economics change and whether that data advantage that they both talk about really, you know, transpires. Raj, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think both really exciting. I mean, I think we've been watching Lemonade um, with great interest for a few years now. Like, I mean, just in terms of their, what they mean for, I guess, the perception of insurance generally um, and, and how we can potentially learn from that. But to Pran's point there, it's sort of the unit economics that we really need to see if that if that plays out in the longer term. I really hope it does. Um, but ultimately 
these businesses need to be sustainable as well. I think the key point there is sustainable. I like the word sustainable. I do not like the word profitable because I think you can be sustainable without being profitable. And I think people get, people being the media a lot of the time, get too hooked on it. Um, Nigel, did you have a quick point? Yeah, I mean, just a... If you compare what these guys do compared to someone like a Geico who spends $2 billion a year on advertising to the direct motor market in North America, you have to look at it and go, where will we play and how do we go win here? The one thing that Root do, that Lemonade don't, that I question a lot and ask, ask often, is Root have come out with Root Enterprise. You can take our technology, our estate, our, our, te- our full stack of technology and apply it to your existing business. If Lemonade did the same and made it available to all the existing carriers out there, would you just go straight to that rather than spend millions and hundreds of millions on, on application and estate modernization because these have got they haven't got the oil tanker, they've got no legacy, they've got no technical debt. So is it a smarter way to do things? My underlying principle is I think, and I think we had the debate with uh, Jimmy from My Urban Jungle on the show a long time ago, my debate is I think everyone pivots at some point to become a platform provider, not a direct carrier. And we had we had this with um, Scott Walczak on the show. If you remember, Sarah, he talked about how they've moved from being a direct to consumer to a platform provider to other carriers that are out there. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think we see that quite a lot in the fintech space as well, particularly uh, if you look at another business that needs scale to survive wealth management. Um, Lemonade does have its API, but that is more, I think, along the lines of the cover genius model than it is along the platform model. Um, did anybody have a final point they wanted to make on this before before Nigel takes us into the, the realm of the fantastic? I think, um, yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, I guess it's like a cardo in when it comes to kind of delivery. They've obviously used platform their kind of logistics at angle. I think the one difference I would say potentially is Ocado never built up that brand that I think Lemonade are doing. And if you can keep the access to the customer, especially if I think 70% of their customers are under 35, they're really tapping into a, a market that, um, you know, an, un, an uninsured segment of the market with renters, but also a younger market that haven't been buying insurance for many years. I think potentially they can win by, you know, keeping the access to the customer. If only Ocado had a decent app slash website, I might be more inclined to use them. <laughs> I love Ocado. Leave them alone. Well, they don't have an app. Uh, Nigel, over to you. Please wrap us up with our final story of the day. I'm not sure how I seem to get these. Me and Hannah have to have words. But the last story of the day is, uh, where do I start? Man jailed over failed insurance fraud. Wife rammed car into tree stump. Now, this is not the Christmas blooper show. This is actually a where a businessman was jailed for insurance claim uh, lie after his new bride crashed his van into a tree stump. Um, what do we have here? So a 36-year-old man from Cheltenham said he was driving his car at the time of the crash and wished to claim £12,000 from AXA. However, CCTV showed otherwise. I mean, honestly, we're in the most camera intense country in the entire world it's bound to be on something anyway uh, just a week after getting married the wife of the family man was at the wheel when the collision happened but she was not covered by the vehicle policy the man pretended to act that he was the driver and had to swerve to avoid hitting a cat cat called stumpy obviously unfortunately for him the collision was recorded on a nearby homeowner's cctv and clearly showed a woman at the wheel when the car hit the tree stump next to the road the camera captured her and her two children getting out of the car um, and walking away from the scene 
subsequently, this is quite serious, obviously, subsequently the man was jailed for 10 months after pleading guilty to making a false statement to the police. He also admitted to making a fraudulent statement to AXA. So the, the judge said that Mr. Russell's offending was an attack on justice in the country. It feels very extreme to me. I don't know if this, if he was a repeat offender, then maybe 10 months jail time would be fair. Um, I, it, I don't know. It seems like a really extreme punishment for insurance fraud to me. I have to say that my favourite detail from the story is the wife and her children just got out of the car and walked away. <laughs> it's nothing to do with us. It wasn't me. I don't know how well, it got well, there. <laughs> I, I'm intrigued by it. The actual thing I'm really in, interested by it actually is the, how did they go about seeking CCTV footage from the people around the accident. And I don't know if you've all seen in the news recently, there's been a number of um, claims or schemes that are out there where they will actually link into people's ring doorbells or Google doorbells or CCTV on your house or whatever else to create a network of stuff for surveillance that says, hey, this it's like watching Minority Report or um, what's the movie with Will Smith where he's been spied by satellites? Um, it'll come back to me. But things like that, that you can use all this footage to work out what's gone on. So are we are we worried about the fact the guy lied and, and it's been quite a heavy sentence, as you say, Sarah, or actually that we're able to go and gather footage to help solve some of, some of these sorts of things? I think they must have been suspicious. I think this wasn't this guy's first attempt at this and AXA must have been suspicious, but I have to do more digging. I don't know the details. Yeah, I think there's, um, I don't know if you saw on the news, Ring, you know, the home security co- company owned by Amazon, they now have a new drone that you basically, um, if you if you go into, the, into someone's house, or you go and try and rob someone's house, the drone lifts up and follows you around the house. <laughs> um, and I just, yeah, I think there was, I think I'm a big smart home lover, but I think that was the point where I think, I think it might have gone too far. Um, it's only 300 quid as well, which is, you know, a lot of money, but it's a, it's a drone that follows people around in your home. I know too much to be a smart home fan. I won't even have Alexa in the house. Well, I mean, there's a whole different conversation there around um, domestic abuse in smart homes, which is probably for a different story. But I'm with Pran. I love smart home technology. I looked at that and went, come on, this is going too far right now. This is getting silly. Raj, bring us back to sanity. What do you think? I mean, I think it beats the story of last week about the lady who chopped her own hand off. But um, I'm wondering which neighbourhood he lived in. Maybe it was perfectly normal to have a CCTV camera on the neighbour's um, garage. Maybe he had a Mercedes. I don't know. Like, I mean, it depends on the neighbourhood, really. But... There are bits of Cheltenham where that would definitely be. My, my <laughs> sister went to university in Cheltenham. There are bits of Cheltenham where everybody has, you know, full home security down to the dogs and the iron gates. And then there are bits of Cheltenham where that is not the case. So um, basically, I think we need to do more digging. I feel like there's, I feel like there's more backstory than we got to this. So I, I'm with you on that. And I would say, look, fraud has been an issue in the industry for God knows how long, right? We've got to solve the fraud issue. It costs every single one of us, whether we have a home policy, a motor policy or a pet policy, as we've talked about in the past, it costs us real money. I was about to say something else that I won't say because we've not mentioned the whole show. Um, so we've got to get rid of fraud somehow. Sarah knows where I was going and didn't go there. Um, we have to work out what we do. But equally, isn't there, a, isn't there a product market opportunity that says, hey, Mrs. Russell's wife was driving, therefore automatically trigger the right policies so that she is covered at this time, as opposed to not being covered, which would avoid the opportunity for fraud. So rather than going, hey, this wasn't there, give someone the opportunity to go, uh, Pran, I see you're driving, you're not currently insured. Would you like to toggle on fully comprehensive cover? You swipe the thing before you go and you're covered and, and off you go. And we can start to get rid of these things going forward. 
Yeah, but the man committed insurance fraud. I suspect the reason his wife wasn't covered was because he didn't want to pay for two people to be covered on the van. I, I, I agree, agree with, with you. <laughs> I like the policy idea because I drive our car 99% of the time when my partner drives only 1%, so that would be great. I don't think this man would have gone from that. Sorry, Raj. No, I was just going to say I completely agree. I think I, I, I think the reason that she wasn't covered, I mean, ideally, as soon as they got married, which was eight days before this incident or whenever it was, <laughs> she should have been added to the car policy. But um. But I, I mean, I remember getting married 20 odd years ago and Emma didn't change her passport because um, we wanted to travel on passports and tickets and what's not. And actually, if you don't change names and passports and addresses, obviously, that's an illegal offence. If you're if you're if I get this correct, if your driving license and the address on that don't match the address of the registered owner or the, or the, the car and the insurance, it's all out of sync anyway. So you're also, in theory, null and void. So keeping those things in sync if you've just moved house or in this instance just got married i mean you can argue it was a genuine mistake but i'm with sarah i think you need to do some digging i think it's a really good reason to not change your name if you decide to get married i just don't you know i think that does assume one has changed one's name when one gets married which isn't the default um but back to your point about uh, car insurance you're absolutely right you i keep saying this to a lot of my friends your address must be valid on a driving license or your insurance is completely invalid um I think perhaps we will wrap that up with that sage piece of advice there from me, if I do say so myself. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you uh, other than your podcast, Raj? Uh, where can people find you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Raj Trivaria. And then obviously, if you want to listen to the podcast, riskymix.uk. Perfect. Pran, how about you? Yeah, I feel left out. I probably need to start my own podcast at some point as well. <laughs> I'm the only one here that isn't, hasn't got one. But um yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Tranjal Aria, um, and obviously you can check out a home tree at uh, hometree.co.uk as well. Brilliant. And Nigel, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much to my guests, to Raj and to Pran, and as always to my co-host today, Nigel. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Intertech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.